welcome to the War Studies podcast. We bring you world-leading research from the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the largest community of scholars in the world dedicated to the study of all aspects of security, defence and international relations. We aim to explore the complex realm of conflict because the study of war is fundamental to understanding the world we live in and the world we want to live in. of the very speed of communications and instant availability of massive quantity of data results in decision-making by computer rather than on the basis of political reflection. In today's episode, we're marking 30 years since the end of the 1990-91 Gulf War, looking at how it revolutionized warfare for the 21st century and reset Persian Gulf politics and Western Islamic relations with implications for us today. Dharan, Saudi Arabia, 26 February 1991. I was on the way home from a dinner party given by the defense contractor I was working for at the time. We had celebrated the start of a massive construction project on King Abdulaziz Airbase, the epicenter of Operation Desert Storm, the military action directed against this Iraqi occupation of neighboring Kuwait, which was still in full swing. As I came closer to the compound where I lived, I noticed helicopter searchlights overhead, then ambulances racing by in the opposite direction. Clearly, something had happened. And after I had arrived home, I switched on the TV, tuning into CNN, which was broadcasting via satellite from neighboring Bahrain. It showed live footage of an inferno, and I recognized the shopping mall center located not even a mile away. On the very day that the Iraqi troops fled Kuwait, President Saddam Hussein had ordered a parting salvo of Scud missile attacks, and one of the rockets had hit an army barracks behind the mall, killing 27 and injuring 100 American soldiers. Suddenly, the war was at my doorstep. Seeing the carnage outside beamed instantly into my living room via satellite TV really drove home the realization that I was indeed witnessing the first war receiving 24-7 live media coverage. Fast forward to my current incarnation as a scholar of Islam specializing in the intellectual history of the contemporary Muslim world. Almost 30 years later, I was reading a rather strange book by an Iranian philosopher, Reza Negarastani, entitled Cyclonopedia. Fitting into an emerging literary genre called theory fiction, that is a kind of philosophical counterpart to technology-focused science fiction, The book's narrative prominently features the changing nature of warfare in the Middle East set in motion by this 1991 Gulf War. As a philosopher, Nigarustani belongs to a new school of thought called speculative realism, which finds its roots in a workshop held in London in 2007 and which is greatly influenced by French postmodernist philosophers, such as Jean Baudrillard and Paul Virilio. And soon I found out that Baudrillard and Virilio had actually written about the 1991 Gulf War, the armed conflict I had witnessed up close a quarter of a century earlier. At first, I was not sure what to make of their eccentric writings and idiosyncratic interpretations. These men were academic philosophers, not experts in Middle Eastern studies, nor did they hail from backgrounds in geopolitics, war or conflict studies, or international affairs. 
But as I came to reflect on their ideas and theories surrounding the Gulf War, I came to see how many of their observations have been uncannily prophetic, given the events we witnessed over the last 30 years. In a way, they had anticipated growing anti-Western sentiments in the Islamic world, the events of 9-11 and the rise of global terrorism, the invasion and, and subsequent war in Iraq in 2003, radicalization, extremism, jihad, and the ensuing rise of Islamic State. And this caused me to ponder the significance of the Gulf War of 1990-1991, which I had lived through, but which has been largely forgotten in recent history. It had revolutionized war and conflict as we know it, even up to today. Welcome to the War Studies podcast. Today we're recording a special episode to mark 30 years since the end of the Gulf War. A war waged between the 2nd of August 1990 and the 28th of February 1991 between coalition forces from 35 nations led by the United States against Iraq, following the invasion and annexation of Kuwait by Saddam Hussein. The final combat phase was codenamed Operation Desert Storm and saw a five-week bombardment of Iraqi command and control targets from air and sea, followed by a ground invasion in February. And here to discuss this dramatic end to the Gulf War, as well as how it revolutionised war for the 21st century, reset Persian Gulf politics and Western Islamic relations, is Dr. Carol Kirsten, reader in the study of Islam and the Muslim world in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at King's College London, and an associate of the Institute of Middle Eastern Studies here at King's also. Carol has not only studied the Gulf War in the context of Islamic studies, but as we heard from the intro, he was actually working in Saudi Arabia at the time, and watched events unfold before his eyes, giving him a unique perspective on our topic today. His experiences living and working in the Arab world led him to pursue a career in academia, during which he's been the founding editor of the book series, Contemporary Thought in the Islamic World, published by Rutledge, as well as a founding member of the British Association for Islamic Studies. He regularly appears in the international media as a commentator on current affairs and developments in the Muslim world, and has worked as a consultant for the BBC, and for the Religion Media Centre for their project on improving religious literacy among media professionals. So Carol, thanks so much for joining us um, on this podcast today. For listeners unfamiliar with the history of the Gulf Wars, could you give us a brief overview of what you mean by the Gulf War or wars and the Persian Wars, and why you say that this one from August 1990 up to February 1991 was forgotten? Yes, certainly. Um, well, that term Gulf or Persian Gulf Wars has become a bit of an umbrella term for various armed conflicts in, in that part of the Middle East in the, in the last two decades of the 20th century and in the beginning of the 21st century. And that Gulf War of 1990-1991 is now a bit forgotten, not only because it was so brief, but also because Time-wise, it's wedged in between two other longer and larger scale conflicts in that region. First of all, there was that very bloody confrontation between Iran and Iraq following another Iraqi attack on yet another neighboring country. And after Iraq's invasion of Iranian territory, a war erupted that dragged on for eight years from 1980 till 1988, costing millions of lives on both sides and with no clear victor. Now, in that conflict, the West was actually supporting Iraq against the newly established Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, which was regarded as a major destabilizing factor in the Middle East. 
And then 12 years after that 1990 Gulf War, there was a second US-led intervention against Iraq, which began in 2003. Operation Iraqi Freedom was launched based on what we now know was questionable intelligence that Saddam Hussein was developing and stockpiling weapons of mass destruction. It would have been much better if the US had been more transparent about its motivations, namely that they had some unfinished business with Saddam Hussein. Because in 1991, the coalition had only a mandate to evict Iraq from Kuwait, not to effectuate a regime change. And when that eventually was arranged in 2003, it also did not go exactly as expected. And as a result of uh, the power vacuum left by the downfall of Saddam Hussein, Iraq descended into civil war. And even now, almost 20 years later, it's not exactly a stable country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's a really helpful summary. And I think, um, I mean, we all know the 2003 war here in the UK as, as the Iraq war, I guess. Um, and perhaps we're not so familiar with the fact that that, that war in 1990 to 91, you know, potentially led to, to the Iraq war in 2003. Can you expand a bit more then on the events of this Gulf War um, in the early 90s, including the operations Desert Shield, which then became Desert Storm in January 1991 in its combat phase? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the course of 1990, tensions uh, rose between Iraq and its uh, tiny southern neighbor, the state of Kuwait, uh, when Saddam Hussein accused Kuwait of drilling for oil under Iraqi territory. So eventually in August 1990, Saddam Hussein used this as an excuse to invade and occupy Kuwait. And Saddam had gambled that the international community would not challenge that move. He probably reasoned that he had built up sufficient credit by taking on uh, Iran in the 1980s. And uh, Iran was a former ally of the US turned rogue state after the expulsion of the Shah and turned into a rival of Saudi Arabia for control over the strategically and economically very important Persian Gulf. And although a significant oil producer, Saddam thought that Kuwait would be sacrificed for the sake of stability in the region. But Saddam gambled wrong. It was a mistake because uh, led by Saudi Arabia, which, which also gave refuge, by the way, to the Kuwaiti emir and his family and tens of thousands of fleeing Kuwaitis, uh, the other Gulf states not only successfully appealed to their allies in the West and to the United Nations for a condemnation of Iraq's move against Kuwait, but they also managed to mobilize them for military action. And it was the US that took the lead in all this by simultaneously lobbying in the UN Security Council to set up a coalition of 35 countries, and also by initiating a massive military buildup in the Persian Gulf under the direction of the so-called US Central Command. This is based in Florida, but a central command is responsible for coordinating military actions in the Middle East. And Saudi Arabia became the main host for a huge military force. Now, this was a very sensitive issue, and it took the Saudi monarchy some haggling to persuade uh, the reactionary religious establishment to uh, issue a fatwa that condoned the presence of non-Muslim troops on Saudi soil especially since this was in preparation of a military action against Iraq, which was, in spite of everything, still a fellow Muslim country. 
because there is all kinds of impediments in Islamic international law against aiding non-believers against other Muslims. And it did indeed lead to a split within the Muslim world, and in particular within the Arab world. Some Arab nations like Egypt joined the coalition, while others sided with Iraq, like the Palestinians, who would later pay very dearly for that. Now, that military buildup between August 1990 and January 1991 was codenamed Operation Desert Shield. And when by January 1991, uh, Iraq ignored the ultimatum set by the coalition for withdrawing from Kuwait, the green light was given for active armed intervention and Operation Desert Shield became Operation Desert Storm. Now, the actual hostilities lasted little over a month, and it was mainly executed from the air. Beginning on 16 January, for about a month, the coalition air forces really relentlessly pounded Iraq. And the subsequent land war only lasted a few days. It became, in effect, a sort of a mopping-up operation of capturing tens of thousands of totally demoralized Iraqi troops until the liberation of Kuwait City on 26 February, and the declaration of a ceasefire a day later. That's a really great overview and really interesting what you say there about um, sort of Islamic international law and, and how it sort of split the, the Arab world. Um, so if we move on to look at your perspective on this, because as you've said in the intro, um, you were living in, in Saudi Arabia at the time. So what were you doing in, in Saudi at the time and, and what was your experience of these events? My original academic training was in Arabic and Middle Eastern studies. And after graduating from university, I was hired by a large Dutch engineering and construction company, uh, which had been already one of the house contractors of the Royal Saudi Air Force since the 1970s. And the company actually became a subsidiary of British Aerospace, which had become the key supplier of military aircraft to Saudi Arabia as part of a massive defense deal between the UK and Saudi Arabia, known as the Al Yamama program. And, and that is how in the summer of 1989, I was sent to Saudi Arabia and seconded to the program director for the civil engineering and construction work, which our company was going to execute under the Al Yamama deal. And then after a year at the company's headquarters in Riyadh, Senior management thought it a good idea that this uh, bookish Arabist gained some real insights into the construction business. And that is how in the fall of 1990, I was transferred to King Abdulaziz Airbase in Dharam, which is located in the oil-rich Eastern province, and which then became also the central logistics hub of Operation Desert Shield, which by then was in full swing. So uh, our company was actually mobilizing a workforce and making site preparations for the construction of two very advanced hardened shelters for uh, torna tornado fighter jets. Now, when things got really tense in January 1991 and war seemed unavoidable, the company decided that all non-essential staff would be temporarily evacuated and relocated to Riyadh. And together with the project manager, I stayed behind with a a skeleton crew of a dozen or so technicians to, uh, well, to hold the fortress, so to speak. And that is how I got what, what I sometimes call a skybox seat to Operation Desert Storm when hostilities commenced on 16 January, because that air war was launched 
and coordinated from King Abdulaziz Air Base, where I was stationed. And in the course of these events, I, I also experienced a few of those uh, Scud missile attacks launched by Iraq, because obviously the air base was, was one of the key targets. Wow, I mean, that's pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, so you've talked about watching CNN's sort of coverage of, of, of these events, and um, you've mentioned as well earlier that you know, this forgotten war was actually a watershed event in terms of redefining warfare for the 21st century. What, what do you mean by this? What made this war different from, from the previous Gulf War and former wars that had come before? Well, you know, operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm were really planned with surgical precision. And that's not always a luxury available to a military. But in this instance, uh, the coalition almost had half a year to amass all the weapons, equipment and material uh, for a highly advanced military operation that was going to make use of the latest technology uh, against, I mean, let's face it, a very inferior adversary. And in this war, the U.S. was basically putting into practice an apparatus for electronic warfare developed in the course of the Cold War, but now first put to the tests since the Vietnam War. At the same time, these advances in electronics and communications also changed the way in which media covered armed conflict. From the late 1960s until the early 70s, that, that Vietnam War had indeed been a fixed item for the evening news, but the 1991 Gulf War was covered in real time, live, 24-7, by the first satellite news station, CNN. So this was the very first conflict in which IT challenged not only the nature of warfare, but also of war reporting. And the consequence of the very speed of communications and instant availability of massive quantity uh, of data results in decision-making by computer rather than on the basis of political reflection. And the same is true for reporting, because that constant barrage of images, which is continually fed to the public, makes it not only impossible to, to vet the information, uh, but just as is the case with the political and military decision makers, it leaves little room for journalistic reflection on what is actually happening. Yeah, that's really interesting. And we're going to come on to that a little bit more um, as we talk about how you came back to kind of thinking about reflecting on the Gulf War, which was, as you said in your introduction, um, when you came across a rather eccentric book by the Iranian philosopher Reza Negaristani, who, as you've said before in, a, in another talk, is, a, is associated with an emergent strand of contemporary thinking called speculative realism. And he draws upon the work of a group of mostly French philosophers' reflections on the Gulf War. And as you pointed out, they had no background in the Middle East or international affairs, yet they chose to write about this specific war. What do we mean by speculative realism? And why do you think the Gulf War in particular captured the attention of these philosophers and therefore Negaristani? Well, you know, as a thinker of Iranian extraction, it's not so surprising that Negaristani uh, situated his uh, Cyclonopedia which is not a conventional work of academic philosophy, by the way, that he situates that, that story in the Middle East. Um, speculative realists are actually philosophers who challenge postmodern philosophy uh, because they accuse 
postmodern philosophy of being too preoccupied with uh, the knowing subject, discourse analysis, at the expense of the material realities around us. They ignore not only uh, the finitude of us humans, but also of, well, the universe. And, and this material finitude should actually generate a whole lot of very different philosophical questions. Uh, now, the two postmodern writers I mentioned at the beginning, Baudrillard and, and Virilio, actually astutely observed the significance of communication technology and the concomitant uh, media revolution exhibited in the way in which that Gulf War unfolded. Now, in the case of Baudrillard, that interest remained very much focused on discursive formations, that is to say, the ways in which the war was reported and written about. But Paul Virilio, who has a, a vivid interest also in architecture, and in particular military archaeology, as well as the history of warfare and its technologies, now he can be said to actually have an interest in materialist philosophy. Thank you for that. And um, yeah, as, as you were, as you've been talking about these two uh, French philosophers, one of them, uh, Jean Baudrillard, wrote a book entitled La Guerre du Golfe n'a pas eu lieu. The Gulf War did not take place. Which, um, he released it at the time of, of the war, or just I think just afterwards, um, and it understandably angered many many critics at the time. But what exactly did he mean by this? I don't think he was denying that the war had actually happened, was he? Indeed, he was not denying that that there was a, a massive armed conflict unfolding and people were actually getting killed in the Persian Gulf region at the time. What he meant by uh, that provocative uh, phrase, the Gulf War did not take place, is that it was not a war in the conventional sense of the word due to that huge difference between the two adversaries. A technologically very advanced war machine uh, run by that coalition versus a military apparatus still stuck in the industrial age. And, and as a result of this asymmetry, uh, Baudrillard claims that what unfolded there in the Arabian desert in 1991 was not a war in the conventional sense of the word, not even the modern warfare evolving in the course of the 19th and 20th centuries. Instead, he said, you have to call this, he said, an act of domination the complete subjugation of the Muslim world by means of an international coalition controlled by the only remaining superpower of the day, the United States. Yes, and as you've we've touched upon a bit about the media, um, these philosophers were concerned with the way that the media was covering the war and the 24-7 live media coverage. And in another talk, you've talked about that this was like a new form of, of censorship. Um, we now see 24-7 live media coverage as completely normal, completely expected. Why did it concern those philosophers back then so much? And what did they mean by this new type of censorship? Well, as I mentioned earlier, that IT revolution is generating such a massive quantity of data that, that selection and reflection becomes a, a constant and almost unsurmountable challenge. Um, and another concern is that the realization among political and military decision makers of the significance of information has also led to a manipulation of that information. And, and in the Gulf War, we saw that phenomenon of, uh, you know, privileged pool reports and reporters embedded with the troops uh, that provided the military with an opportunity of exercising censorship. Journalists not playing 
by the rules set by the military were excluded or banned. Yeah, I mean, I, if you think about today and how far we've come um, and the fact that, you know, the whole revolution of social media and that anyone can potentially um, cover a war and can can sort of video a conflict on their phones or like post on social media, on Twitter, etc. Do you think that this has become worse because of this new era of constant news and everybody's got news at the fingertips? Or do you think it's actually a more democratic way of, of understanding and, and sort of coming to terms with war and seeing war? Well, of course, the, 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 the possibilities afforded by these technologies uh, have been almost uh, endless. And exercising control, indeed, over that information has become more of a challenge uh, as social media sort of escape the control, indeed, often of political and military authorities. But it, it only actually underscores the significance of information and that the actually un unfolding of events, the, the, you know, the military uh, armed altercations, become almost secondary to how it is depicted and the kind of images that, uh, that reach audiences. And that realization is now also there among the public. Huh? I mean, in the last couple of years, the mention and accusations of fake news and things like that are, are almost never off the air anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really interesting and important. And as you mentioned in your intro, some of the rather obscure musings of these postmodernists and post-structuralists um, now almost seem to us prophetic. Can you explore their theories in light of some of the developments we've seen in the last 30 years following the aftermath of, of this Gulf War? Yeah, I mean, especially Paul Virilio uh, expressed grave concerns about the aftermath of the Gulf War. Uh, he too had signaled that asymmetry between the coalition and Iraq, but he notes also that Saddam Hussein's regime survived for another decade, and he had kept sufficient armed forces intact to, uh, to quell uprisings in the Shia-dominated South, and in Kurdistan, in the north of, uh, of the country, where he had already used uh, chemical weapons on an earlier occasion. But in the intermittent uh, decade, world order changed dramatically. And eh? the, the USSR and other communist regimes in Eastern Europe had fallen into disarray. And with it also, uh, the Cold War balance of power maintained by nuclear deterrence uh, based on the doctrine of mutually assured destruction collapsed. And with that, the world has not become a safer place, eh? far from it. Because already in his book on the 1991 Gulf War, Virilio was speaking of a deterrence of the strong by the weak. And with the fragmentation of the Warsaw Pact, there was a genuine fear, not only of existing nuclear weapons falling into the wrong hands, but also the, the available technologies finding cruder application in, in so-called dirty bombs or the prospect of an increased use of chemical weapons. And as I earlier mentioned, there was that split caused within the Muslim world by the 1991 Gulf War, and these fissures have continued to fester. A figure like Osama bin Laden, who had been also an appreciated ally of the US and was bankrolled by the Saudis when fighting the Soviets, in Afghanistan during the 1980s, he was livid over the hypocrisy of the Saudi regime as it began making common cause with the unbelievers against fellow Muslims. 
And he felt sidelined when his services were no longer required after the, the USSR had withdrawn from Afghanistan. And soon also veterans from the Afghan wars uh, began to fan out over the world. Don't forget that these men have what I call transferable skills. So in the 1990s, they, they popped up in other conflict zones in the Muslim world, in Bosnia, the Horn of Africa, but also in Southeast Asia, uh, while others returned to Europe. And, and in Riyadh, they began to realize that they had created their own monster of Frankenstein. I still have a newspaper clipping from 2001 announcing the resignation of Prince Turki El Faisal, who are as, uh, as the head of the Saudi General Intelligence Directorate, the, the Saudi CIA. In that capacity, Turki El Faisal had held the Afghanistan portfolio and had been, in effect, Osama bin Laden's handler. This prince left his post 10 days before 9-11. So in, in this regard, Ferilio had had his uh, premonitions too. And he identified actually in 1991 already the mega cities of the world as these new battlefields for the deterrence of the strong by the weak. And this opens up the worrying prospect of violent Islamists hiding among the population, which eventually became a reality. 20 years later, Nigarustani has called this hyper-camouflage. And, and in his writings, Nigarustani traces the origins of this tactic to the Islamic notion of taqiyya, an Arabic term that literally means concealment or dissimulation. And in the earliest times of Islamic history, this had been used as a survival tactic by Shia Muslims when facing oppression by, by the Sunni majority. But around the 10th century, it was transformed into an an instrument of subversion and insurgence by a militant sect known as the Fatimids. And in the present-day Muslim world, it finds renewed application by what you know, the media called the jihadists. Um, the ultimate instances of Takia as hyper-camouflage were the hiding of Osama bin Laden in a villa right next door to the Pakistani military academy, or the infiltration of uh, Islamic State in the Iraqi-Syrian borderlands, where, where government control was minimal. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, and your research obviously looks into the Islamic world and the relationship between Islam and the West. And as we've said, as we've established, this Gulf War had, had an impact on that going forwards. And in a recent paper, you also discussed the idea of that we should be moving away from this simplified, divisive understanding of a dichotomy between the West and Islam, and that it's far more nuanced and, and we need to get more sophisticated in our understanding of that. Yeah, I mean, that, that neat Cold War bipolar world order is no more. Huh? But, but similarly... It is also not possible to look at our post-colonial world in, in binary terms of a West versus the rest, which of course also includes the Muslim world. And as post-colonial theorists uh, say, during the colonial era, the metropole was in the colony, but nowadays the colony is also in the metropole in the form of large migrant communities from the global South. So such dichotomous worldviews 
are not very helpful eh, for, for integrating migrant communities, including those from, from Muslim backgrounds. And well, aside from being an impediment for social cohesion building and, and instilling a, a sense of citizenship, this binary way of thinking about religions and, and the civilizations they have shaped, as is advocated, say, by, by such figures as uh, Samuel Huntington and his clash of civilization thesis, that image is also flawed from a cultural historical perspective. I mean, in the case of Europe, it's more accurate to speak of a Judeo-Christian Islamic legacy um, instead of leaving out this third component. Because, you know, despite instances of conflict, 15 centuries of interaction between Europe and the Muslim world has been one of a relationship also of cultural cross-pollination and, and commercial exchange rather than confrontation. Uh, and that is also something I will continue to, to research as part of my, uh, my participation in a newly established German-Swiss network of scholars of Islam specializing in modern Islamic philosophy. The Germans have coined a very nice term for this, what they call Verflechtungsgeschichte, which means something like the history of cultural intertwining. And I think that is something that needs to be pursued in a much more thorough and in-depth manner to, to, to get a more accurate uh, insight into how, how civilizations relate to each other. We're now going to move on to the feature section of the podcast where we look at the research behind the research. So, Carol, you've clearly had a fascinating career, which has no doubt given you unique insights into your area of academic expertise. Um, so firstly, what ignited your interest in the Arab world and led you to study Arabic at university? Well, when I was in high school in the 1970s, the Middle East was already a region in fermentation. Eh? Uh, there was the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but also the Camp David Accords, civil war in Lebanon. Uh, an Islamic revolution in Iran, and, and then that Iraq-Iran war I mentioned earlier. Also, our family had been on holiday in North Africa, in Tunisia and Morocco. So I got curious, you know, and, and I began to read up on Middle Eastern and Islamic history and devoured books of Middle East explorers. Initially, the plan was to go study history or international relations, but with the clear intention of specializing in the Middle East. But it was then that I discovered that so-called area studies programs were being introduced in Dutch universities, where you could study a particular region from an interdisciplinary perspective as part of a very intensive uh, language training. And, and I had reason that well, if you want to become an expert on a particular geographical area, you need to know at least one of the regional languages. I do not have a particular knack for learning languages, but I was willing to make the effort to learn Arabic, even though it is an indeed intimidatingly difficult language. And although my initial motivation had been the current affairs in the Middle East at the time, I also have taken courses in international law and in security studies, but I became increasingly fascinated by Middle Eastern history and, and by Islam. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely vouch for how difficult Arabic is because I tried to learn a bit of it in the past. Um, how is the Arabic these days? I haven't been there for a long time, so it's getting a bit rusty. But yeah, it's, it's not an easy language. I mean, uh, a very superb Arabist once a sort of only half jokingly said that the first 25 years are the hardest. <laughs> oh, gosh. But then you also, I mean, you took your Arabic and you lived in Saudi Arabia for over a decade. What was that experience like? 
from Arabis that it's a great opportunity, of course, to Saudi Arabia. I mean, the peninsula is the heartland, the cradle of Islam. It was very much a closed-off country, still the case, but at the time, visa were really only available for businessmen or for companies with contracts in the country. Uh, on top of that, the company I worked for had contacts at the highest levels with, with you know, very senior princes acting as our uh, commercial agents. So also work-wise, it was highly educational, not only in terms of, you know, the high-tech projects being executed, but also witnessing these, you know, wheelings and dealings going on over there. And look, the pay was also not too shabby, and uh, it's a perfect place to uh, to raise a young family. Interesting. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought that, actually, because of the heat and restrictions and things. But um... Yeah, but the compounds are, are you know, if, if you work for a big company, you basically live in one big club mat in the middle of the desert. Yeah. And, you know, my children, although they were very small, still have a sort of a homesickness for Saudi Arabia because let's face it they were little princes and princesses. (laughs) That's really interesting Um, and how did you come into academia after that then? Well I am also a bit of a nerd and uh, I mean I did my 10 years in Saudi Arabia in in two tours of duty so to speak first a six-year stint after which I took a sabbatical and I I went back to my old university and, and actually studied philosophy for a year because I realized that I knew more about Arab culture and Islam than about my own. And, and then I did another four years uh, because the same company brought me back as its uh, personnel manager for all its operations in the Middle East, not only in Saudi Arabia, but also for uh, their projects in Bahrain. But, you know, after 10 years, I began to suffer a little bit of Middle East fatigue. And, and by then I had also developed an interest in Southeast Asia because many of our workers came from that part of the world. So I had traveled there already quite extensively. Um, and then in 2000, we moved to Thailand, where I first did another sabbatical at a local university, which, which then hired me to teach history and world religions to study abroad students. And then 9-11 happened, eh? and there was suddenly all this interest in Islam and radicalization and things like that. After a few years, I decided to pursue uh, a PhD, and for that, I actually ended up in in London at at SOAS. And I was not even finished uh, with that when I was encouraged to apply for uh, a vacancy uh, here at King's. And I was successful. And, uh, well, now the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, And as you said, you studied philosophy and we talked about uh, French philosophy, Persian philosophy uh, in relation to the Gulf War. How important is it that we we draw on disciplines such as philosophy that may not bear immediate linkages to to conflict, war or global politics in order to understand the complexities of, of war and conflict from new perspectives? I think it never hurts to look over the fences of our own uh, academic disciplines. Uh, With the advances of knowledge, specialization becomes unavoidable. But I think that that scholars should guard against being locked up too much in their uh, respective silos, because I I think it kills creativity. And uh, an interdisciplinary approach uh, at least stimulates thinking out of the box and and you might be able to come up with with more refreshing analyses. Absolutely. And what's next for you and your research going forwards? Well, I will continue my investigations of uh, of Reza Nagaristani as part of my involvement in a research project on 
post-humanism, which is conducted by uh, the Institute of Philosophical Studies in, in, in Slovenia, of all places. Negarostani will also feature in, in a new book. Uh, I have just signed a contract with Edinburgh University Press for a book entitled Islam and Contemporary World Literature. As an intellectual historian, eh, you can quickly end up dealing only with abstractions, especially when you develop an interest in philosophy. And by adding literature to the mix, I, I expect to open up new perspectives. It's also, of course, a great excuse to read some fun books. But, but, but seriously, I expect literary texts to be a, a rich source for quarrying more individualized interpretations of religion, in my case, Islam, of course. And I intend to argue that this forms an, an antidote or a counter-narrative that, that will challenge collective identity politics that is affecting both the proponents of multiculturalism and its detractors on the populist nationalist side of the spectrum in yeah, what by all appearances looks like a, a new round of culture wars predicted and, and often even propagated by those buying into that clash of civilizations uh, thesis. And, that, and that's something I want to challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And as we talked, well, I guess that draws on that, that, that underlines your point of having a more multidisciplinary approach um, drawing on literature as well as philosophy and other things. So thank you so much for what's been a really fascinating discussion to, to mark 30 years since the end of the Gulf War. My pleasure. I hope that we can work with you on other stuff in the Waterseas Department going forwards. Um, but yeah, thanks again. Thank you. Yes. You have been listening to the War Studies Podcast. Produced and edited by Lizzie Ellen, Aisha Khan and Danny McDivitt from the School of Security Studies at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to receive regular updates, please visit our website, which you'll find in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider. It really helps us reach more listeners. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the War Studies Podcast.